You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in to episode number 266 of our Civil War podcast. I'm Rich. And I'm Tracy. Hello y'all, welcome to the podcast. As y'all recall with the last episode, Stonewall Jackson's famous flank attack at the Battle of Chancellorsville got underway on the evening of Saturday, May 2nd, 1863, and shattered the 11th Corps of the Army of the Potomac. By the end of the last show, we'd seen that in just an hour and a half, Jackson's surprise attack had rolled forward and overwhelmed the Federal's 11th Corps, driven it a mile and a quarter, and routed it from its last feasible defensive position at Dowdall's Tavern. Jackson's flank attack had so far been a resounding success. From Dowdall's Tavern, it was less than two miles to the Chancellor House and the heart of Hooker's position. But, but, now the sun had set, which meant that perhaps just 40 minutes of evening twilight remained. And so just then, as rebel artillerist Porter Alexander put it, daylight was worth a million dollars a minute to the fortunes of the Confederacy. In his book, Chancellorsville, 1863, The Souls of the Brave, Ernest Ferguson writes, The thickness of the forest, some trick of the breeze, kept the sound of the fighting from the ears of Joe Hooker at Chancellorsville. On the pillared veranda of the house, he and his aides, Captains William Candler and Harry Russell, were sitting chatting in the balmy dusk. Occasionally, they heard noise from the other direction, where Lee was jabbing at the Union lines. But for, ha- but for perhaps an hour after Jackson's attack began, they heard nothing from the West, and strangely, nobody came to raise the alarm over what was happening there. When the faint sound of cannon fire drifted by, they assumed it was from Sickles' venture down toward Catherine Furness. They were wondering about how that operation was going when something caught Russell's eye west toward Dowdall's tavern. Stepping off the porch, he lifted and focused his spyglass. My God, he said, here they come. Just to the east of Dowdall's tavern, the wilderness closed in, leaving the Orange Plank Road, which ran straight east toward Chancellorsville, as the primary corridor of escape for Howard's wrecked 11th Corps. 
This narrow corridor ran for half a mile before the forest gradually gave way to form ever larger clearings, first at an old schoolhouse, then at Fairview, and finally at the Chancellor House. It was about 6.30 when Captain Russell spotted the first rush of fleeing men, animals, and vehicles. Hooker and his staff officers quickly mounted and, along with some cavalry, tried to halt the frantic retreat by using their horses to block the plank road and by freely swinging about with the flats of their swords, all without the slightest success. After several minutes of this desperate, futile effort, Fighting Joe Hooker realized that whatever enemy had set off this panic was sure to be not far behind, so he called on Captain Claremont Best, the artillery chief of the 12th Corps, who had guns at Fairview, to wheel them into battery facing west. For infantry, he turned to the only troops left in reserve near the Chancellor House, Hiram Berry's division of the 3rd Corps. At this moment, Hooker's greatest worry was that the panicky 11th Corps fugitives would infect Barry's men with their fear. But this was Hooker's old division, and so he rode over, and for old time's sake, called on them to stand fast. And Barry's men responded with a cheer and rushed into position. In his book on Chancellorsville, Stephen Sears writes that, quote, the crushing of the 11th Corps did not entirely become the skedaddle the newspapers would report. There were regiments and parts of regiments that went back in decent enough order, under officers' control, then took up defensive positions in the rear as ordered. Yet for each of these stories there was another story, or two or three stories, of utter demoralization and uncontrollable panic. Rushing into the Chancellorsville clearing, panicked men surged northward over every byway, crying out for directions to the bridges and safety across the river. Old-timers, seeing this flight who had served on the frontier, were reminded of cattle and buffalo stampedes. To others it seemed the blind flight of sheep. After the battle, men in the other corps would delight in telling stories of frightened Germans eager to put the river between them and the oncoming rebels, running by officers trying to block their way, and yelling, Wo ist der Pontoon? Which means, Where is the pontoon? Right. So, the next time you're visiting the Chancellorsville battlefield, if you want to add a touch of historical realism to the experience, you can go running full tilt past a tour group, yelling, Wo ist der Pontoon? Wo ist der Pontoon? <laughs> Rich. <laughs> Rich. Okay. All right. At any rate, later, when account of the 11th Corps survivors could be made, it was found that of the nearly 11,000 men in line when Jackson's flank attack struck, just over 2,400 were casualties. The Confederate assault was so sudden and overwhelming that nearly a 1,000 of that number were captured. Nine guns were lost. The rebel attackers are thought to have lost about 800 men. From the Chancellor House, Hooker sent couriers racing off through the gathering dusk with urgent messages, 
to try to remedy the fact that the high open ground nearby at Fairview and beyond at Hazel Grove was now at risk since the federal troops had been who had been responsible for holding those spots had been drawn off to help with Sickles' excursion to Catherine Furnace. We talked before about how Sickles' movement south to Catherine Furnace had drawn in units from the other corps. Now, with disaster looming, Slocum had Williams' 12th Corps Division recalled to reoccupy its position guarding Fairview. Sickles was ordered to abandon the furnace and return to Hazel Grove with his two 3rd Corps Divisions. Barlow's brigade from the 11th Corps had gone the farthest, and so was the last to return to the reconsolidated Union lines. In the other direction, Reynolds' 1st Corps, which was already on its way to Chancellorsville, was ordered to hurry its movement across the river. And Meade, on his own initiative, shifted his 5th Corps units to secure Hooker's line of communications at U.S. Ford. Fortunately for Hooker, by now the Confederates were almost as disorganized by victory as the Federals were by defeat. The second wave of attackers... Raleigh Colston's division, continued to move forward and pile into the first-line units of Robert Rhodes' division, especially during the pause in the rebel advance when the Yankees made their stand at Dowdall's Tavern. Also, the Confederate battle lines were becoming compressed as by a funnel, narrowing from almost two miles at the start of the attack to a half-mile or so as they drove past the tavern into the darkening woods beyond. As the formations entered those steadily darkening woods beyond the tavern, it became harder than ever for the rebel officers to maintain control. Finally, at about 7.15, Rhodes ordered a halt to reorganize. Later, in his official report, he would explain that, quote, such was the confusion and darkness that it was not deemed advisable to make a further advance, end quote. Rhodes sent a message to Stonewall Jackson recommending that A.P. Hill's troops in the third line come forward to take over the advance, while he, Rhodes, reformed his brigades. As a measure of the confusion among the Confederate lines just then, Rhodes' order to halt didn't reach a number of the men in his three leading brigades. In the growing darkness, some of Iverson's North Carolinians, O'Neill's Alabamians, and Dole's Georgians continued barreling forward along the plank road and through the woods, and, as Stephen Sears put it, where these, where these rebels met resistance, they struck sparks. Third Corps Commander Dan Sickles, as he had slashed at the tail end of Stonewall Jackson's column at Catherine Furnace, had sent for Union cavalry to join in the expected pursuit of the supposedly retreating rebel army. As a result, Brigadier General Alfred Pleasanton had brought three regiments of horsemen and a battery of horse artillery down to Hazel Grove to await Sickles' orders. But then one of Hooker's headquarters dispatches had called for cavalry to help corral the stampede of 11th Corps troops, since mounted men were thought to be best for halting panicked infantry. 
Pleasanton ordered Major Huey Pennock to take the 8th Pennsylvania Cavalry and return to Army headquarters at the Chancellor House. The orders, though, failed to mention anything about an attack on the 11th Corps or rampaging Confederates, and the sounds of battle hadn't reached Hazel Grove. So Pennock was caught by surprise as he took his men northward and ran into rebels just before reaching the Plank Road. Suddenly realizing the road and woods around him were thick with Confederates, Pinnock ordered his men to draw sabers and charge, since there was no room to turn around and retreat back to Hazel Grove. As the Pennsylvanians charged forward, the Major discovered the plank road to his right was crowded with enemy soldiers, so he led his troopers in a dash off to the left, away from Chancellorsville, hoping to find some way out of the trap he'd stumbled into. The troopers with Pennock had gone about a hundred yards when they were blasted by a volley of musketry from out of the darkness. Men and horses crashed to the ground or spilled off the road into the woods. The survivors plunged northward, crashing through the trees and brush, and tried to work their way back to Union lines. The companies of horsemen that had been trailing behind Pennock when he galloped off in his ill-fated charge to the left never reached the plank road, but instead they turned off into the dark woods to their right and eventually reached safety at Fairview. The unsuspecting Pennsylvanians had run smack into advancing Confederates from Rhodes' division. The Union horsemen caught the worst of it in this encounter and did little damage to the rebel infantry, but still a warning went out through the Confederate ranks to watch out for surprise strikes by Yankee cavalry. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. 
Besides the chaotic combat between the Pennsylvania Cavalry and Rebel Infantry, there was also another confused dust-up in the darkness between marching and counter-marching Union Infantry from the 3rd Corps and 12th Corps, as well as some Federal cannon at Hazel Grove, while the Rebels involved were from Dole's Brigade, mostly from the 4th Georgia. The Federals involved in this incident would make much of this fighting, and each party would claim to have single-handedly stopped Stonewall Jackson's attack that night. But in truth, the Georgians, who only numbered perhaps 200 men, were scouting ahead on their own and were tired and hungry and more than happy to pull back when they ran into these Yankees in the darkness. It was now 8 o'clock, and the only light in the sky was coming from the moon. On this night, it was one day short of full, and the sky was clear, and so in the clearings around Chancellorsville, there would be visibility through the night. In the dense woods, however, the visibility was sketchy at best, and the gloomy shadows played tricks on the minds of the jumpy soldiers on both sides. As one of the Federal Division commanders, Alpheus Williams, put it, with the almost full moon rising in the sky, there was, quote, just enough of its light to make darkness visible. Under Hooker's direction, the Federals were patching together a new line. At Hazel Grove to the south, it was anchored by a powerful grouping of artillery, five Third Corps batteries and one horse artillery battery, 34 guns in all. Behind these guns, or coming up, were Sickles' two divisions, under Burney and Whipple, that had been down at Catherine Furnace. To the north and east of that salient at Hazel Grove was Alpheus Williams' division from the 12th Corps. A mix of Howard's more steadfast 11th Corps troops was near the Plank Road. North of the road were Barry's two 3rd Corps brigades, and in support, a brigade from the 2nd Corps. The point where this patchwork line crossed the Plank Road was three-quarters of a mile west of the Chancellor House. Then at Fairview, there was a second powerful array of Federal artillery under the command of Captain Best, seven batteries from three different corps, 37 pieces in total. Meanwhile, Stonewall Jackson wasn't deterred in the least by the disorganization of his command, or by the darkness, or by the stiffening Yankee resistance. To him, an enemy on the run must be kept on the run and so he sent staff officers off with orders to sort out the disorder, and from Dowdall's tavern he went forward himself, constantly calling out, Get into line! Men, get into line! Stonewall's intent was unchanged. He aimed to continue driving straight for Chancellorsville along the axis of the Plank Road, while at the same time sweeping into Hooker's rear by the left flank. Only now, A.P. Hill's division must take the lead. When Brigadier General James Lane applied to him for orders, Jackson told him sharply, Push right ahead, Lane. Jackson's artillery chief, Stapleton Crutchfield, brought up Captain William Carter's Virginia battery to back up the horse artillery battery that had been pacing the rebel infantry's advance. In the clearing around the old schoolhouse a thousand yards beyond Dowdall's tavern, there was enough room for Carter to drop trail and deploy three of his guns. He opened fire straight down the plank road. A battery of U.S. regulars posted at Fairview immediately took up the challenge. 
The fire from the Yankee guns caught Lane's North Carolina Brigade in the act of deploying from column into line in order to carry on the advance. The rebel soldiers dove into the woods along the margins of the road, and Lane sent word to Carter that if Carter's guns would cease firing, he thought the enemies would too. Then he could continue his movement. Soon enough, as Lane predicted, the guns fell silent and his brigade resumed its deployment. Lane arranged his brigade with two regiments north of the Plank Road and two to the south, with his fifth regiment advanced as skirmishers. As he was posting his right-hand troops, Lane was presented with a Yankee officer sent back by the Rebel skirmish line. The man had been waving a white handkerchief on a stick and calling out in the darkness, asking whose troops these might be. When the Confederate skirmishers captured the officer, Lieutenant Colonel Levi Smith of the 128th Pennsylvania, he was indignant that his flag of truce wasn't honored. When a small detachment from the 7th North Carolina under Lieutenant James E. Mack was sent forward to investigate, it returned with an additional 198 prisoners from the 128th Pennsylvania. According to General Lane, they, quote, had thrown down their arms and surrendered on representation made to them by EMAC, end quote. The representation, or claim by EMAC, was that Stonewall Jackson had surrounded them. Yeah, <laughs> in any case, although Lane's North Carolinians had the best of this particular encounter, theirs wasn't a comfortable or secure position in the deeply shadowed woods. Lane's 37th and 7th North Carolina were posted in line south of the Plank Road. The line extended north of the road by the 18th and 28th North Carolina. The 33rd North Carolina remained out in front on the skirmish line. Word had already been passed around to beware of surprise strikes by Yankee cavalry, and now this encounter with the 128th Pennsylvania made it clear Federal infantry was right close by. Here and there among the trees, there were continuous bursts of fire. Jim Lane later explained how, quote, When I gave my orders, I cautioned all of my regimental commanders to keep a bright lookout, as we were in front of everything and would soon be ordered forward to make a night attack. Stonewall Jackson rode forward on the plank road toward the front. At the old schoolhouse where Carter's battery was posted, he met up with A.P. Hill and some of that general's staff. Jackson asked Hill how soon he would be ready to advance, and Hill responded that it would be just a few minutes, as soon as he finished relieving Rhodes' troops. Then, leaving Hill to follow, Stonewall rode on up the plank road to do some personal reconnaissance. After cutting over to an old logging road, known as the Mountain Road, Stonewall was past Lane's line of North Carolinians. All that was ahead of him now was the rebel skirmish line, and then the enemy. The little party was about halfway between Lane's line of battle and his skirmishers, when one of Jackson's staff officers, Sandy Pendleton, worked up the nerve to ask, General, don't you think this is the wrong place for you? Stonewall answered, The danger is over. The enemy is routed. Go back and tell A.P. Hill to press right on.
That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation. And our recommendation this time is Chancellorsville, The Battle and Its Aftermath, edited by Gary W. Gallagher. We've already recommended other books in this series, uh, edited by Gallagher. Each book contains a series of essays about that particular battle or campaign. There's even an essay in this one titled, The Smoothbore Volley That Doomed the Confederacy, which, as you might guess, is about the Civil War's most tragic friendly fire incident, which we are about to talk about here in the next episode of the podcast. Don't forget you can find all of our book recommendations if you head over to the podcast website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.org. Okay, so at the end of the last show, we announced our upcoming trip to Pennsylvania this summer, and that part of that trip will be a visit to Gettysburg, and that we'd give you guys a date in case you want to meet up with us there. And here you go. It's going to be Saturday, June 22nd. Right now, we're thinking we'd like to just meet up somewhere on the battlefield, but we'll have to think about a place and time and let you know. But for now, if you want to circle June 22nd on your calendar, well, we'll see you at Gettysburg. Then, as we wrap up this episode, we want to give a shout-out to the newest members of the Strawfoot Brigade, Dan, Ken, Vanessa, Kenny, Tim, and Larry. And we also want to thank Dave down in New Zealand, Jack, and Andrew for their recent donations to the podcast. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Civil War, 1861-1865, to a history podcast. Rich and I do hope that you'll join us again next time when we'll continue with the story of the Battle of Chancellorsville. But until then, take care. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Voice der Pontoon, Tracy. Voice der Pontoon. Rich. Voice der Pontoon. Where is the pontoon, Rich? Where is the pontoon?